Well, dear saints, I'm, I'm glad we can have this fellowship together this, uh, this weekend. I feel it's very important. And I truly believe that the Lord will speak something new, fresh and up to date to us from his heart, um, for the building up of his body and to prepare us more to be his bride to bring him back. Now, uh, the three messages that we'll cover, we chose them from the recent uh, ITERO, the International Elders and Responsible Ones training. But we really feel, I feel this with all my heart, that this speaking is for all the saints in all the churches over the whole earth. Um, of course, this will be in Holy Word for Morning Revival. And uh, it's a very, very important word. Now, let me just get in right into the outline here. The general subject says God's economy in faith. Now, when, it, when we look at 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, we've always been impressed that we should not, with Paul's charge to Timothy, you know, actually he told Timothy, I want you to charge certain ones not to teach differently from God's economy. Um, and um, we've always, you know, been really uh, impressed with that, those of us who've been around for a while, that the unique teaching in the New Testament is the teaching of God's eternal economy, which is also the teaching of the apostles. But it's so easy to look at these verses, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, and not notice these two words, in faith. God's economy in faith. Uh, this is a huge prepositional phrase. What that means is that God's economy, and specifically our experience and enjoyment of Christ as the centrality and universality of God's economy, is in the sphere and element of faith. So if we don't know what faith is, if we don't exercise our spirit of faith, there's no way that God's economy can be experiential to us. Uh, there's no way we can enjoy Christ as the reality of God's economy uh, for the building up of the body of Christ and the preparation of the bride of Christ as the goal of God's economy. So these two words, in faith, are really powerful words. And um, I think, uh, you know, some of the brothers, um, we pray before the meeting, and I think there were some prayers here also. You know, I would just like to mention this one verse in Second Thessalonians 1, 3. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. I want you to remember that first and second Thessalonians, Paul wrote these epistles to brand new believers. They were new believers. And um, you read these epistles, you read the footnotes, you read the life studies. You can see how Paul took care of new believers. It's really quite wonderful. Um, I'm just thinking about it. I have to, anyway, I have, there's so much here, you know, but anyway, I have to be focused now. Second Thessalonians 1, 3, Paul says this to them. I'm just going to read part of it. We ought to thank God always concerning you, brothers, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Your faith grows exceedingly. So we need our faith to grow day by day, and not just grow, 
but grow exceedingly. Uh, you know, the church in Thessalonica, if we read the first epistle, we can see that they became a pattern to all the other churches. And so we need to pray, Lord, I pray that my faith, my personal faith would grow exceedingly day by day and corporately. Our faith as the church in New York City, as the churches, would be in a, in a, would be progressing and would be growing exceedingly day by day. Now, uh, let's look at the first Roman numeral. This says this, and I just have a, a brief, um, word concerning God's economy here. This is God's eternal economy is God's household administration. Again, there might be some newer ones with us here. I would just like to reinforce that, you know, when Paul told Timothy, I want you to charge certain ones not to teach differently from God's economy, that word economy in the Greek is oikonomia, composed of two Greek words, oikos, which means house or household, and nomos, which means uh, law or administration. So we can say God's eternal economy is God's household administration. And, and we'll read on, of course, his household administration is to dispense himself into us. So I would just say this, saints, we should have a prayer us right now. Lord, dispense yourself into me as much as possible this weekend. Uh, that is what he's doing on the earth. He wants to dispense himself uh, into people initially to regenerate them, and he doesn't stop there. He wants to dispense himself into us continually uh, so that we're brought through the process of sanctification, renewing, transformation, confirmation, and eventually glorification, in, at which time we become exactly the same as he is in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. Uh, that, that is a wonderful process that we're going through. So, you know, what? I was on a flight to Russia one time. Well, actually, it was the first time. It was in 1993, and it was in the winter. And uh, brother, he asked Andrew and I to go, and then he asked Dick also. But he looked at Andrew and I and Dick after he charged us to go. He says, brothers, I want you to go to Moscow. And it was January. And, you know, January in Moscow is uh, not like January in Anaheim. Uh, anyway, uh, brother, he said this to us. He said, brothers, have a nice vacation. And then he laughed. And of course, we laughed, but when we got outside, we went, oh, Lord, you know, because the Moscow winter is is really harsh, you know. So, but anyway, we went, um, and uh, on the plane, I can never forget this, I was sitting next to this gentleman, and I asked him, why are you going to Moscow? He said, well, he said, I'm an economist. And the reason why I'm going to Moscow is because the government has asked me to come to help them with their economy. Because uh, I think, as we know, maybe a little bit, maybe we know a little bit of history. You know, when when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, you know, the economy in Russia essentially collapsed. And so they wanted this particular person as an economist to help them with their economy. 
And so I said to him, I said, have you ever heard of God's economy? He said, what? What is God's economy? So I got to share with him about God's economy. It was very, very good. Um, he had never heard anything like that before, of course. And um, God's economy is not in the realm of dollars and cents. Actually, God's economy is way above that. God's economy is in the realm of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so God's eternal economy, let me go on, is God's household administration, which is to dispense himself in Christ. And again, again, Christ has unsearchable riches. Dispense himself in Christ into his chosen and redeemed people so that he may have a house to express himself, which house is the church, the body of Christ. Now, this is an important statement following a semicolon. God's economy is initiated and developed in the sphere of faith. Now, this is what we want to look into. What does it mean um, for God's economy to be initiated and developed in the sphere of faith? All right, let's come to, well, before we do that, you know, notice that I have 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 6 on here. Usually we just put 3 and 4. I wonder, Brother Ed, why did you put 3 through 6? Well, the reason why I did that, uh, saints, is because, especially in verse 6, you know, uh, Paul says, I want you to charge certain ones, you know, just to teach God's economy. So the word charge is there. In verse 6, it says, the end of the charge is. That means, the end there means the result of the charge, the issue of the charge. What is the result and issue of the charge to just teach God's economy. According to verse 6, he says the end of the charge is, is, uh, it's, 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 uh, love out of a pure heart. It's a good conscience and it's unfeigned faith. But what I want to emphasize what verse 6, um, uh, what verse 6 says is that the end of the charge, I just want to use this one, uh, little part is love out of a pure heart that's the issue that's the result of the teaching of god's economy so when you are when you are under the healthy teaching of god's economy it increases your love for the lord it increases your appreciation of the lord it increases your enjoyment of the lord because one of the unique ways to enjoy the lord is to love the lord we know that from revelation 2 uh, one through seven, that, um, you know, Paul told the church in Ephesus, you left your first love. And then um, at the end of the epistle, he talked about them enjoying Christ as a tree of life. He didn't want their lampstand to be removed from them, which is the testimony of Jesus. So you have loving the Lord, and you're loving the Lord is you're enjoying the Lord as a tree of life. So loving the Lord and enjoying the Lord and being the testimony of the Lord as the golden lampstand, they go together organically, organically. But saints, I want to emphasize this. Just think about your experience. Um, you know, of course, I can see Roger Fish there. He doesn't have to answer me, but you're probably on mute, Roger, and that's probably good. But Roger, just consider when you read a life study, isn't there something in you when you're finished? Don't you want to say, Lord Jesus, I love you? 
Absolutely. Roger's nodding his head. You know, one time I shared this saints it's kind of, in a sense, it's a little bit, I, I was amazed these sisters did this. There was two young sisters. They said, okay, Brother Ed said that if we get into the ministry, uh, uh, the result, the issue will be that we will love the Lord out of a pure heart. We'll even be that we'll say, Lord Jesus, I love you. Because I shared with the saints, I said, you know, it's hard to read through a life study and not at one point say, Lord Jesus, I love you. So they said to one another, well, let's, let's, let's see if, this, if Brother Ed's right about this. Let's read this life study. So they were reading the life study together, and they completely forgot about everything because the life study is so enjoyable, right? So they're reading the life study, and then at a certain point, they both say, Lord Jesus, we love you. And then they went, Brother Ed's right. He's right. Anyway, they did an experiment. Uh, but saying, thank the Lord that we are under the ministry of God's eternal economy that stirs up our love for the Lord Jesus and that betroths us to Christ as our husband. Okay, now, um, let me come to, this is for Timothy 1, 3, 6. Let's come to A. A says the Christian life is a life of faith, a life of believing. This is Galatians 3, 2, and 14. We do not live according to what we see. Saints, we don't live according to what we see. Uh, all these verses tell us this. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, uh, Paul says this, We do not lose heart, even though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Then he goes on in verse 17, he says, Our momentary lightness of affliction works out for us more and more surpassingly an eternal weight of glory. Then in verse 18, he says, For we do not regard the things which can be seen. We regard the things which are unseen. Because the things which are seen are temporal or temporary. And the things which are unseen are eternal. So, saints, you consider these verses. You know, our outer man is decaying. You know, uh, I was with the, some of the brothers last night, and and Brother Ricky pulled up this, uh, I don't know if you want to call it an excerpt from one of the videos in the past where Brother Lee was sharing. And Brother Lee asked me to read, uh, read the verses. And... Uh, I was much younger then, of course, and I looked at myself and I kind of jokingly said, look, I have, I don't have one gray hair. My hair is totally black. But now look at my hair. I can't find one black hair there, you know, because my outer man is decaying. But saints, I could say this. My inner man, I am becoming younger and younger inwardly day by day. And so, uh, Praise the Lord, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And uh, it says our momentary lightness of affliction works out for us more and more surpassingly. And eternal, that's versus momentary, an eternal weight of glory. Momentary lightness is versus weight. Uh, eternal weight of glory, it, glory is versus aff- affliction. And saints, 
In this meeting, we are not looking at seeing things. We're looking at the unseen, invisible God in this meeting. And um, it's just marvelous. You know, in First in Timothy 1, 8, Paul, I mean, Peter, he tells the saints this. He says, whom having not seen, you love. In other words, you haven't seen the Lord physically, but you love him because he's very real to you in the divine and mystical realm of faith. And we'll talk about this later, how he how he's so real to us. So uh, Peter says, whom having not seen you love, and you rejoice with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Saints, I think we all can testify, you know, I, I can't see all of you, but at least one time in our church life experience, we rejoiced with joy that was unspeakable. In other words, it was indescribable. In the, you, you, can't, you can't even describe sometimes when you're in a meeting uh, the joy you have from, from, the Lord, from enjoying the Lord's presence. So again, this is something in the invisible, divine, and mystical realm. Hebrews eleven twenty seven, it says it talks about Moses. It says Moses persevered. How did he persevere? Listen to this. Moses persevered as one seeing the unseen one. So Moses saw the unseen one because Moses was living by faith. That's why. Now, go on. We live according to what we believe. Our walk is by faith, not by sight. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Now, let's come to B. B says, believing is the exercise of our spirit of faith to substantiate the divine facts. Now, saints, I love 2 Corinthians 4, 13, because it says that you know, when you get regenerated and the Lord comes into you, comes into your spirit, now your spirit is a spirit of faith. You know, saints, if we just exercise our mind and we neglect our spirit, doubts are in our mind. Faith is in our spirit. So this is why we have to exercise our spirit. And don't let the enemy lie to you. Oh, you don't have any faith. Your spirit is full of faith. Your spirit is a spirit of faith, and faith is in your spirit. Doubts are in your mind. This is why we need to ask the Lord, Lord, teach me how to exercise my spirit at all times, because my spirit is a spirit of faith. Um, now, you know, Hebrews 11 gives us a definition of faith. It says that faith is the substantiation of things hoped for, uh, the conviction of things not seen. So it's by our spirit of faith that we substantiate the divine facts in the Holy Word. When we use the word substantiate, what we mean is that we make the the divine facts in God's Word real to us. They become real to us because we have substantiated them by our spirit of faith. Okay, let me go on. We'll see this a little later. It says, once we believe by saying amen to God's word. Saints, it is a great thing to say amen to God's word. You know, we have two hymns in our hymnal, I believe, in our supplement. 
Uh, one says, what a wonderful change in my living is wrought by saying amen to God's word. Saints, we need to learn to say amen to God's word at all times. And when we do this, we substantiate the divine facts. And we have them when we say amen to God's word by exercising our spirit of faith. Uh, you know, us saints, always remember that in our experience and enjoyment of Christ, the divine facts come first. Uh, you have, you have facts, then you have faith to substantiate those facts, and then you have feeling or experience that matches, matches that. So you have, you have facts, faith, and feeling. Don't trust in your feeling. Believe in the facts. Don't believe in your feelings. If, if I, you know, if I believed in my feelings all the time, my goodness, uh, where will we be? We're not swinging from the chandeliers all the time, so to speak. You know, we're not like, you know, we don't feel, you know, like we're on the ceiling all the time. But the fact, we have to stand with the facts. The fact is, according to Ephesians 2, 6, that we've been raised together with Christ. So where are we? The fact is, stand with the fact, we are in resurrection right now. Not only that, Ephesians 2, 6 says that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Saints, we are not just seated in our home right now, or I don't know where you are in the media or in your home. We are seated in the heavenlies in ascension with Christ Jesus. We, we say amen to that word by exercising our spirit of faith. When we practice that, then our experience follows that to, to experience those divine facts which were substantiated by our faith. So there's facts, faith, and feeling, or you can say experience or enjoyment. So don't believe in your feelings. Believe in the facts. Believe in the facts. Now, uh, let me go on after the semicolon. It says, amen does not mean a wish for something to be accomplished, but a declaration that it will surely be accomplished and that there is no doubt about it. How about that, brothers? Amen, no doubt about it. Every time you say amen, you're saying no doubt about it, Brother Ed. Um, listen to this. I'll, I'll read on. When we believe, we are accepting what the Lord has already promised to do. He's already promised to do so many things in his word. His word is a covenant to us. You know, in the Greek, if you look in Hebrews 9, uh, the Greek word for testament is the same Greek word for covenant. And when, when a person makes a testament, that is their will, W-I-L-L. If I'm a very rich person and, uh, you know, let's say I'm a trillionaire or a gazillionaire, a gazillionaire or however high you want to go, uh, if I uh, make out a will uh, to Brother Roger, then uh, if I go to be with the Lord, uh, then everything in my will goes to him. Everything. 
And I'm saying this because Hebrew 9 says explicitly, it says this, that for a will or testament to be enforced or to be, you know, enacted, actually be enforced, it requires the death of the testator, of the one who made the testament. He has to die. Well, here's what happened, saints. The Lord shed his blood on the cross. His blood is the blood of the covenant. So when he died, when he died and shed his blood, that was the enactment of the new covenant. That was the enactment of God's will to us. Listen to this. When he resurrected, he became the new covenant. He became the life-giving spirit. And as the life-giving spirit, he is the reality of the new covenant. He's the reality of all the bequests of the new covenant. So saints, um, in resurrection, he became the reality. You know, I'm holding this Bible up. I don't know. You know, this is our will, brothers. All of this has been willed to us. Have you read? How many times have you read your will in a prayerful way? That's why we need to read our will over and over and over again. And uh, we we read the Bible. This is our will. And we say amen to whatever's in that will. And um, when we do that, we're accepting what the Lord has already promised to do. So in resurrection, he became the bequest of the new covenant. And in ascension, he is the executor of the new covenant. He is making sure that everything in this covenant is being executed, is being imparted into us. And say, I just want to say this, you know, all of us are, um, of course, I don't have a monetary amount. In one of the Wednesday night meetings, I asked this brother, you know, what's after a billion? Then he said a trillion. I said, what's after a trillion? Then he said the next number. I said, what's after that? Then he went to the next number. I could not believe this brother's knowledge of numbers. It just went up and up. I didn't even... I didn't even know the vocabulary words he was using. Eventually, I stopped. I said, okay, brother, that's good enough. You know, he went, he had words for every grade of billion, trillion, you know, whatever, you know, going up, up, and up. Brothers, what is our, our spirit is our bank account, brothers. We have so, we have the unsearchable riches of Christ in our spirit, which is our bank account. Now we need to write checks. Write checks. Don't don't think there's only $20 in your bank account. If you do say, oh, no, I can't write a check for uh, this thing. Listen, in the divine and mystical realm, you can write a check for anything that's in this will. Think about that. Now, how do you write a check? The way you write a check is you take one of these promises And you pray, read it back to the Lord. When you pray it back to the Lord, when you pray it back to the Lord, you say, Lord, as the spirit of reality, guide me into the reality of this verse. I say amen to this verse, Lord. Let it be so in my experience. When you do that, you are writing a check and you are cashing a check. And that that portion of riches in your spirit is being dispensed into your soul. Right then. So uh, 
We have a mark. Brothers, what a prayer book we have. We can never run out of things to pray. Because this is our prayer book. This is the way we cash in on the unsearchable words of Christ. We do this by faith. Okay, now, brothers, um, again, it says, when we believe we are accepting what the Lord has already promised to do, I want you to make this correction. It says 1 Corinthians 14, 15. It should be 1 Corinthians 14, 16. Make sure and put verse 16 there instead of verse 15. Now, what verse 16 says essentially is this. You know, it says that, you know, if unbelievers or unlearned people come in, uh, they have to understand what you're saying. Otherwise, listen to this. It says this. How can they say the amen at what you're saying? Not just how can they say amen, but how can they say the amen at what you're saying? This shows that in the church meetings in the early days, all the saints said amen. You know, when 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 uh, when Brother Aaron gives a testimony, it's just normal for me to say amen. When Brother Peter shares, uh, Brother Peter knows I always say amen. I love Brother Peter sharing. So uh, it just it just it was a practice among the New Testament believers to say the amen. In the church meetings. And saints, we've got 2 Corinthians one twenty on here. It talks about Christ being the yes. Think about this. Christ is the capital Y, yes. That means he's the incarnate answer, the fulfillment to all the promises of God in the Holy Word. And we need to say amen to this yes. We say amen to him as the divine S. Yes, and when we do this, it says, through him is the amen to God for glory through us. So when we say amen to this yes, you know, in the meetings, whatever kind of meeting that is, the Lord is glorified through us. Now, brothers, I'll come to Nehemiah 8. This is quite marvelous. You can look at this later. But if you remember the children children of Israel, they had returned uh, to the good land. And, uh, of course, the whole nation needed to be reconstituted with, with God's word because they, they had been so long away from God's word. So Nehemiah asked Ezra, Ezra, this was Ezra's function. He knew the word, the word which was the law for them. You know, he, he wanted Ezra's function to be brought forth. So it's, it, this portion is marvelous. You know, Ezra, uh, this is in Jerusalem. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem were gathered together. They built a platform for Ezra. And it says, Ezra opened, um, you look in verse 5, it says, Ezra opened the book. You know, of course, that was the law, but it was the word. Ezra opened the book. I like this. And you know what happened when you opened the book? All the people stood up. I like this. All the people stood up. And then it says, Ezra blessed Jehovah, the great God. And after after Ezra blessed Jehovah, the great God, it says, all the people said, amen, amen. They lifted up their hands and they said, amen, amen. And then they bowed down. Amen, amen. And then if you look at verse 8, 
there were some people with Ezra. You know, you know what he did, brothers and sisters? He read the Bible to everyone in Jerusalem from sunup to midday. I don't know when sunup starts in New York City, but let's say 5.30 a.m., 6 a.m. He read the Bible all the way till noon. Think about that. That's a long time. And, and they didn't move. They wanted to hear that Bible and get it into them. But you know what? There was some, um, there was some, um, uh, how would I say, uh, Levites. I would say it this way. There were some Levites with Ezra. And after Ezra read the word, they went out among the children of Israel because they wanted to interpret the sense. I use this word, the sense of the word to them. And uh, if you go to verse 13, it says they wanted to give them insight into the words of the law. So this is what Ezra's helpers function. They function to bring the saints into the intrinsic significance of God's word, which is wonderful. But again, you have the word amen uh, mentioned there. In Revelation 3.14, we know that the Lord himself is the amen. All right, now let's come to Roman numeral 2. In Roman numeral 2, now we're going to come to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore let us also, having so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, put away every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and run with endurance the race which is set before us. Saints, when we got regenerated, well, you know, whether we like it or not, we were put on a race course. The Christian life is a race, and we were put on a race course. And, you know, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said that he was running this race, and he exhorted us. He said, Saints, I want you to run in a way that you will obtain the prize. You will obtain the prize. You know, in, a, in an actual race, one person receives the prize. And so Paul said, he said, I want you to run in this way so that you can obtain the prize. So we, we want to run in this way. We'll see how we can run. Okay. Now it talks about a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, A says the cloud is for leading people to follow the Lord. And the Lord is in the cloud to be with the people. In Greek, witnesses implies the sense of martyrs. So a a great cloud of witnesses, that Greek word for witnesses is martyrs. Same Greek word. And don't be afraid of the word martyr. Actually, every if we live a normal Christian life, we will live the life of a martyr. What does that mean? It means we live a life of exercising our spirit of faith to reject ourselves and to live by another life, by the life of Christ who is in our spirit. This is our life. We reject everything of who we are in the natural realm so that we can touch Christ enjoy Christ, experience Christ, and flow Christ out to others. Uh, That is to live a martyr's life. So uh, it says the Lord is in the cloud to be with the people. Okay. So saints, we are all witnesses. And thank the Lord, there is a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. You know, all the saints around us are like a cloud. 
a cloud of witnesses. And um, Saints, let me say this word about martyrs, you know, martyrs. And I'm repeating the ministry, of course. You know, we can be martyrs physically. That's obvious. But saints, we can also be martyrs psychologically and spiritually. And we need to be martyrs psychologically and spiritually. Let me give you an example of psychological martyrdom. Psychological martyrdom has to do with ourself, our soul, our mind, emotion, and will. Brother, he told this story of this one dear brother he was he before he got saved he was making a lot of money and um him and his wife they lived in a very um exorbitant worldly way well this brother got saved and he came in the church life and because of that he didn't care about money anymore he, he just totally you know money didn't mean anything to him and material things didn't mean anything to him anymore and because of that, his wife didn't like that. His wife didn't like that at all. So his wife persecuted him. I don't know in what way, but his wife wasn't happy with him. Uh, and so one time he invited Brother Lee and the other elders over to his house to eat. And so they came over and his wife, his wife, fixed them cold leftovers, cold leftovers. Now, I know when I go to Ricky's house, he never gives me cold leftovers. Uh, but this this brother's wife, uh, she brought the brother's cold leftovers, and the brother, brother Lee said, you could tell, he looked at the brother's face. The brother felt so bad, he was in tears. And, and brother Lee and the brother said, no, you know, no problem, what's, you know, forget about that. Let's enjoy the Lord. You know, brothers, when we get together to eat with one another, sometimes I don't even know what I'm eating. I'm just looking at the saints and enjoying the Lord. This, is, this food is an excuse for me to be with the saints, to enjoy the Lord with the saints. Well, Brother Lee and the brothers, this is what they did. They uplifted that brother. But that brother had to suffer psychological martyrdom, which means he had to reject uh, uh, his worldly enjoyment, uh, the enjoyment of his soul life, so that he could live by another life, which is the life of Christ in his spirit. Now, there's also spiritual martyrdom. Brother, you made this statement. And so I had to pray, Lord, what is spiritual martyrdom? Well, saints, listen to this. Uh, I'll give you an example. At the end of 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 12, Paul told the Corinthians, uh, he told them something about Apollos, and he said, I urged Apollos many times to come to you, but it was not at all his desire to come to you at this present time. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. If Paul urged you many times uh, to go somewhere, would you tell Paul, Paul, it's not at all my desire to do that? You know when Brother Lee told us to go to Russia? I didn't say, oh, Brother Lee, it's not, it's, it's not at all my desire to go to Moscow in the winter. I didn't say that. I said, amen. I realize this is the Lord's will. But Apollos, he had a different feeling. Now, if you read the text, you, you realize that Paul's heart is so broad. It didn't bother him at all. 
Well, Paul doesn't desire to come to you. It's no problem. But if you get deeper and you read, you know, into the intrinsic realization here, which, what you realize is when Paul urged Apollos many times to come to the saints in Corinth, that was the Lord's will. Was it not? Paul's not going to say anything that's not the Lord's will. He's not going to urge a brother many times to go to a place, and, and he's not assured that it's God's will. Well, Paul said it was not at all his desire, so Paul said, okay, no problem. But what Paul suffered there was spiritual martyrdom, because he had the sense in his spirit deep within, this is the Lord's will. Paul should go to visit the church in Corinth, but he's not going to go. So Paul had to put aside, reject even his spiritual realization of God's will. Uh, that's spiritual martyrdom. And I saw that with Brother Lee. I, I saw Brother Lee a number of times. Um, uh, he told, one time he told Francis Ball and I, Francis with the Lord now, he was talking about a certain brother. And, uh, you know, this brother might go to Brother Lee and say, Brother Lee, how do you feel? And, and Brother Lee said, oh, yeah, no problem. But Brother Lee told Francis, he said, that brother doesn't realize that I just went along with him. I just went along with him. I really didn't feel that way. I just went along with him. Uh, so I tell you, brothers and sisters, I never wanted Brother Lee to just go along with me. That would be terrible. I mean, I wanted, I wanted Brother Lee to tell me what he really wanted. Brother what do you really feel? What do you really want? You know, so there's these three stages of, of being a martyr. Now, let's come to one. It says, with the people of faith, we can have the Lord's presence and his leading. Just like right now, we're with the people of faith, saints. So we can have the Lord's presence right now. We can have his leading right now. I'll go on. All the people of faith, the church people, are the cloud. The best way to seek the Lord's presence is to come to the church. The saints, there's one portion in Exodus 14 that's remarkable to me. You remember that the way the Lord led the children of Israel was by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And the pillar of cloud led them in the daytime. And that cloud changed to fire in the nighttime. It was the pillar of fire. Now, what happened, you remember, as the children of Israel were coming, were, were leaving Egypt, they came to the edge of the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh, he said, oh, I made a big mistake. I'm going to chase after these guys. She so got his chariots, and they were chasing after the Israelites. And, uh, you know, here's the Red Sea. Behind them are, the, are Pharaoh and all of his chariots, his army. And you know what happened? The pillar of cloud that was before them, or you could say uh, the pillar of fire, what it did was it was before them and it moved behind them. It moved behind them. It says the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, and it it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Listen to this. And the cloud was there with the darkness, yet it gave light by night to them. It gave light by night to the children of Israel. Okay, and then it says, thus, one, 
did not come near the other, that's the Israelites and Egyptians, one did not come near the other all night. Now there's a note on there, on, on the word, on the word darkness, and it says this, whenever those who follow the Lord face opposition, the guiding light spontaneously becomes the protecting light. Isn't that wonderful? The guiding light becomes the protecting light. Listen to this. However, to the opposers, the protecting light becomes darkness. That is very profound, saints. Just you can look at those notes later. Now, let me come to two. Two says, if anyone is seeking the Lord's leading, he must follow the cloud, the church. The Lord is in the cloud, meaning that he is with the people of faith. Three says, since we are the people of faith, we are today's cloud, and the people can follow the Lord by following us. Those who seek him can find his presence with us. Saint, that should be our situation in every meeting, whether it's a ministry meeting like this, whether it's a small group meeting, you know, whether it's a meeting of a few saints, even, even it's just two, two, two brothers and sisters. Um, the Lord's presence, we always want the Lord's presence to be with us. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25. Remember, these verses say, say this, that if an unbeliever or an unlearned person comes among us, it says he's convicted by all, he's examined by all, and the secrets of his heart become manifest, and so falling on his face, he will worship God. And you know what he declares? He declares this, that indeed God is among you. God is even an unbeliever says God is among you, or someone who's not the truth, God is among these people. So uh, we want that to be our case uh, in the church life. Okay, let me go to, um, anyway, saints, we treasure the Lord's presence. If we have the Lord's presence, we have everything. Now let's come to B. B says the Christian life is a race. Every saved Christian must run the race to win the prize. The prize is not salvation in a common sense, in the common sense, but a reward in a special sense. The Apostle Paul ran the race and won the prize, and won the prize. Now, of course, we've got a, a lot of really good verses here about Paul running. He said, I don't run without a clear aim. I don't box as though beating the air. He, Paul even used boxing as an illustration. Um, anyway, these verses are, are quite marvelous, saints. They're quite marvelous. I encourage you to read them. You know, saints, one thing that really touched me, I don't have these verses on here, but is Isaiah 40, 30-31, which is very applicable. You remember these say, although youths will faint and become weary, and young men will collapse Yet those who wait on Jehovah will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and will not become weary. They will walk and will not faint. You know, to wait on Jehovah. We can say it means to look expectantly for Jehovah. The footnote says this. It says to wait on the eternal God means that we terminate ourselves. That is that we stop ourselves with our living our doing, and our activity, and receive God in Christ 
as our life, our person, and our replacement. Such a waiting one will be renewed and strengthened to such an extent that he will mount up with wings like eagles. He will not only walk and run, but also soar in the heavens far above every earthly frustration. This is a transformed person. Saint, do you want to soar over every earthly frustration? When is the last time that you have been soaring? If it's been a long time, you need to pray, Lord, make me like a soaring eagle. You know, eagle is a type of the triune God. If you look in Deuteronomy and Exodus, uh, in Exodus, the Lord said, I bore you here on eagle's wings. In Deuteronomy, he likened himself to an eagle. Anyway, you can look the word eagle up and you could, you could see that. But anyway, saints, when we look away unto Jesus, he becomes like an eagle to us and we soar and, and we become his, how do I say this? Eaglets. E-A-G-L-E-T-S. We become exactly the same as he is, but we're eaglets. You know, I love eagles. I've never seen an eagle personally. Uh, I know uh, maybe I've seen a documentary on National Geographic. You know, it still amazes me. How does that mother eagle know when to take her little eagle babies and push them out of the nest? That's a huge thing. You're going to push them out of the nest and they're going to fall a thousand feet. You know, but she knows God. You have to believe in God if you just consider this thing. I mean, somehow she intuitively knows, this is in her DNA, when to push those eaglets out of the nest, and they just begin to fly. They don't analyze anything. They spontaneously fly because that's in their DNA. Uh, you know, one translation says this, uh, uh, Brothers, it says this in the margin. It says, for mount up with wings like eagles, it says sprout wings like eagles, sprout wings. So, saints, when we look away under Jesus, you know what happens? We sprout eagles' wings, and we soar. Okay, now let me come to one. One says, an encumbrance is a weight, burden, or impediment. The runners of the race strip off every unnecessary weight, every encumbering burden, that nothing may impede them from winning the race. Two says the unique entangling sin in this context was the willful sin of forsaking the assembling together with the saints, of giving up the new covenant way in God's economy and going back to Judaism. Both the encumbering weight and the entangling sin would have frustrated the Hebrew believers and restrained them from running the heavenly race in the new covenant way of following Jesus. Okay, now Roman numeral 3 brings us to verse 2 of Hebrews 12. This says, looking away unto Jesus. Now it says, run with endurance the race which is set before us. Now we have to get this. How do we run? How do we run the race? Run, run the race. How? Looking away unto Jesus. When you look away unto Jesus, he draws you to himself and he makes you a runner. He makes you spontaneously a runner on the race court. You run by looking away unto Jesus. I'll read on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Notice the words, our faith is there. The author and perfecter of our faith. Now, if you look at the end of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, just before you come to chapter 12, Hebrews 11, 38 talks about all these people who live by faith. Listen to what it says. It says, of whom the world was not worthy. Or really like this. In other words, the world was not worthy of these people who live by faith. Here's what the note says. These faith people are an extra people, a people on the highest plane of whom the corrupted world is not worthy. Only the holy city of God, New Jerusalem, is worthy to have them. Isn't that precious, brothers and sisters? I tell you, I've been, I I don't know why, I've just been, been considering a lot of my dear brothers that have gone to be with the Lord and and, uh, you know, thank the Lord they finished their course. And, uh, but I still miss them. You know, I still miss them. And um, the world was not worthy of these brothers, but the new, only the new Jerusalem is worthy of them. Now, let's come to A. A says we can live the Christian life, run the Christian race by looking away unto Jesus with undivided attention. By turning away from every other object. Saints, the verse doesn't say looking at Jesus. It doesn't say looking at Jesus. It says looking away unto Jesus. That means there's some distracting things here that are around you, that can bother you. There might be some distracting things within you. We sang that song. Look, What does it say? Look away from fickle self. Look away from yourself. Hallelujah. You know, look away from your mistakes. Did you make any mistakes today or yesterday or this week? Forget about Look away from your mistakes. Look away from your wrongdoings. Look away from your weaknesses. Look away from everything in your environment. Look away from your iPhone. How about that? And look away unto Jesus. Now, why do I say that? You know, I like iPhones. I don't have any problem with iPhones. But I took my family out to eat, you know, I took my, my wife and, and two of my boys. Uh, we went out to eat yesterday. Actually, well, anyway, it was a, a particular occasion. One of my boys, you know, while I'm talking to my family, he's on his phone doing all this stuff. I said, I said, I'm not going to tell you which son it was. I said, where are you? I said, I'm in this world. And you're in this world. You're in a, you're on another planet. He said, Oh, dad, you're right. He put his iPhone away. You know, uh, I wanted his undivided attention. You see, uh, you know, many times, you know, forget about the iPhone now. I'm using that as an example. We can be like this. We look away here, look away here. You know, in New York City, there's a lot of things, distracting things. Am I right? You just walk down uh, Broadway. There's so many distracting things. Um, we're, I don't know what street Times Square is on. Um, you know, with that big monitor, you know. Oh, my goodness. You just, you just, all you have to do is stand there and you can be distracted, right? You need to look away from all that stuff. 
Look away from all of those distracting things in New York City. And let's look away unto Jesus right now. That's all I want to do, brothers and sisters. And, um, okay, let's go on. It says, one, the wonderful Jesus, who is enthroned in heaven and crowned with glory and honor, is the greatest attraction in the universe. Two says, he is like an immense magnet drawing all his seekers to him. And, and again, these verses are wonderful. You can read them later. Three says, it is by being attracted by his charming beauty, which in the Hebrew also means loveliness, pleasantness, delightfulness, that we look away from all things other than him. Four says, without such a charming object, how can we look away from so many distracting things on earth? Well, thank the Lord we have a wonderful, charming object that we can look away unto. Okay, now let's come to B. B says, Jesus is the author of faith. Now, saying this point, I cannot tell you how meaningful this is to me. Jesus is the author of faith, the originator, the inaugurator, the source, and the cause of faith. In our natural man, we have no believing ability. But when we look away under Jesus, he, as the life-giving spirit, transfuses us with himself, with his believing element. And let me go on to C. C says, then spontaneously, a kind of believing arises in our being, and we have the faith to believe in him. This faith is not of ourselves, but of him who imparts himself as the believing element into us, that he may believe for us. You know, saints, I want you to consider this. I, you know, I just have to tell you, before I got saved, I would always wonder, I would see Christians, and um, because my wife was a Christian, I was an unbeliever when I met her. And I always wonder, well, how do you believe? You want me to believe? I can't just throw my mind in the wastebasket, and I can't make the great leap of faith, which one greatest story that you need to make a leap of faith. I said, I can't make that leap of faith uh, because, because I have a mind. Well, listen, when we preach the gospel, no one has to make a leap of faith. You just need to somehow get them to look away from every distracting thing on this earth and look away unto Jesus. When they do that, as the life-giving spirit, he transfuses them with himself. As a believing element, he transfuses us with himself, with his believing element, and he believes for us. How about that, saints? He actually believes for us. So, uh, again, he says a kind of believing arises in our being, and we have the faith to believe in him. This faith is not of ourselves, but of him who imparts himself as the believing element into us, that he may believe for us. And then uh, D says, um, faith is Christ himself believing for us in a very subjective way. He transfuses us with himself, working himself into us until he, the very person, becomes the believing element in our being. The next point says, thus, 
It is not we who believe. It is he who believes within us. Now, I like this point, saints. Listen to this. In this way, he makes us a believing being. Saints, what kind of being are you? I know what kind of being I am. I am a believing being now. Isn't that wonderful? You can go down Fifth Avenue and say to everybody, hey, I want to let you all know I am a believing being. Anyway, that might not be the best way to preach the gospel. But, saints, we are believing beings because Christ infused himself into us as the believing element to believe for us. And so now we're believing beings. Now, let me go on. It says, apparently, it is our believing, but actually, it is his believing. This is genuine faith, genuine faith. You know, uh, Saints, um, I, I read this when I was in the intro. I read this portion, um, and it's a testimony of George Mueller. You know, if you look in the collected works of Watchman Nee, Watchman Nee has a lesson on reading the Bible, reading the Bible, and then he has a portion, and it's called meditating on the word during the first period of time. And actually, if you read what Brother Nee means there, uh, is musing upon the word, musing upon the word, which that's the best Hebrew translation. And you know what Brother Nee does? He says this, you know, concerning musing on the word, I'm substituting it for meditating. I think the best thing is for me just to quote George Muir. So he quoted George Muir. Let, let me just tell you one thing George Muir said. He said this. He said, I saw, eventually he saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day, listen to this, was to have my soul happy in the Lord. In other words, before you go out that door, before you come to me, you need to to make sure your soul is happy in the Lord. So the first thing is George Moore to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. So the way George Mueller did this was he took a large print Bible, he took long walks, and actually what he did was he pray-read the Word back to the Lord. He mused on the Word, he prayed the Word back to the Lord, and he got infused uh, with the Lord as his faith. Now, Saint, there's a story here that I really love about George Mueller. It says this, it says... um, now, this is, uh, okay, th- just listen to this. Um, this is really, really good. Actually, this is a ship captain uh, talking to another person. He said, a number of years ago, I went to America with a steamship captain who was a very devoted Christian. When we were off the coast of Newfoundland, he said to me, the last time I sailed here, which was five weeks ago, Something happened that revolutionized my entire Christian life. Um, There was a very dense fog, and I had been on the bridge for 24 straight hours when George Muir of Bristol, England, who was a passenger on board, came to me and said, Captain, I need to tell you 
that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. The captain said, that's impossible. And so here's what George Muir said to him. He said, very well, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. For I've never missed an engagement in 57 years. Let's go down to the chart room and pray. (laughs) This is the captain. I looked at this man of God and thought to myself, what kind of lunatic asylum did he escape from? I had never encountered someone like this. I said, Mr. Muir, don't you realize how dense the fog is? This is what George Muir said. No, he replied. My eye is not on the dense fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. Now, listen to this, saints. He then knelt down and prayed one of the most simple prayers I've ever heard. When he had finished, I started to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder, and he told me not to pray. He said, first, you do not believe that God will answer. And second, I believe he has answered. Consequently, there is no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. And then the captain looked at him, and uh, he said to the captain, Captain, I've known my Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day that I failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, captain, open the door, and you will see that the fog is gone. I got up, and indeed, the fog was gone, and on Saturday afternoon, George Muir was in Quebec for his meeting. Isn't that wonderful? Saints, our faith needs to grow and grow exceedingly. Now, maybe our faith isn't to that extent, you know, but it needs to grow every day exceedingly until we are just like Stephen and Acts. They chose Stephen because he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. All right, now let's come to the next uh, point. Faith is a substantiating ability, a sixth sense. The sense by which we substantiate or give substance to the things unseen or hoped for. I really like this. One says substantiating is the ability that enables us to realize a substance. The function of our five senses is to substantiate the things of the outside world and transfer all these objective items into us to become our subjective experience. Next point says, as the eye is to seeing, the ear to hearing, the nose to smelling, so faith, our spirit of faith, is the organ whereby we substantiate everything in the unseen spiritual world into us. Now, what are our five senses saying? Look, there's seeing, there's hearing, there's touching, there's tasting, and there's smelling. The saints, here's what's wonderful before I read this point. In the divine and mystical realm, when you exercise your spirit of faith right now to touch the Lord Jesus in your spirit, you can see the Lord, you can hear the Lord, you can touch the Lord, you can taste the Lord, and you can even smell the Lord. You might think, oh, brother, that's too much. What about that? Well, let me do, let's me let go to the next point. In the divine and mystical realm of the consummated spirit, we can exercise our spirit of fight, faith, faith with the spiritual senses of seeing the Lord. These verses show us this. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the poor in spirit, they shall see God. We can hear the Lord. 
right? Talks about the hearing of faith in Galatians 3, 2. We can touch the Lord. These verses in Matthew, there's a lot of verses in Matthew about touching the Lord. Oh, if I can only touch him, I'll be healed. How do we touch him? We touch him by exercising our spirit of faith to touch God, because God is spirit. So the only way we can substantiate him is with our spirit. We can taste the Lord. Psalm 48, 34, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, also says we can smell the Lord. Now, listen to what it says after this. This means, listen to this, being permeated with him to such an extent that we become a fragrance of Christ with our Christian walk in love, becoming a sweet-smelling savor to God. Furthermore, as his loving seekers, we eventually become mature in life to the extent that we have a spiritual intuition and olfactory sense of high and sharp discernment in order to discern the things that are of God and that are not of God. You know, saints, firstly, we need to be permeated with Christ to such an extent that we ourselves become a fragrance of Christ. Christ is our aroma. You know, how can, how can you define, you know, you know, here in Anaheim, you know, we get water, I don't know where from the Colorado River or whatever, and everyone has sprinklers, and, and in our yard, we have roses, beautiful roses. I don't even have to go to the florist to get beautiful roses. I just can cut them off and say, here, Ruth, there's some, here's some flowers, you know. Uh, anyway, if you smell a rose, how do you define that? How can you say, well, if you said, well, Brother Ed, what does that rose smell like? I couldn't tell you. It's it's indescribable. But it's something in, in the invisible realm. Now, we need to be permeated with, with Christ to such an extent that we become a fragrance of Christ. Not only that, saints, the seeker in the Song of Songs, if you look at Song of Songs 7-4-B, it says that the seeker has a nose like the Tower of Lebanon. You know, that's a big nose. Tower of Lebanon. What does that mean? That means that she has, you know, it says olfactory sense. That means a sense of smell, of high and sharp discernment in order to to discern the things that are of God and are not of God. That means the intuition of her spirit is so strong that she can smell things that are of God and things that are not of God. Now, I'll just give a little testimony. We'll go on to the next point quickly. You know, one time I was with Brother Lee and uh, Brother Lee made some kind of statement and some of the brothers, they say, oh, well, Brother Lee doesn't have all the facts. If we present the facts to him, then he'll change what he's his feeling. So they went and got these facts all together. And inwardly, I said, I'm not having any part of this thing. You know what I mean? No way. So I stood back. And uh, I tell you, Brother Lee was just amazing. Okay. The brothers brought their statistics to Brother Lee. You know Brother Lee said? I don't need to look at those statistics. Take those away from me. I can smell something. I can smell something. I just went, oh, my goodness. I, I learned a big lesson right there. I'm glad I wasn't involved in getting those statistics. But I appreciated Brother Lee saying I can smell something. That was discernment. Now, the next point says faith as the substantiation of things hoped for. 
assures and convinces us of things not seen. Therefore, faith is the evidence, the proof of things unseen. Now, one says, we were saved in hope, but a hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await it through endurance. Two says, our life should be a life of hope, which accompanies and abides with faith. We should be those who, this is a quote from Romans 4.12, walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. Listen to this. Who beyond hope believed in hope. What kind of hope is that? It's beyond hope. But he believed in hope that was beyond hope. That's a lot of hope, isn't it? But Abraham was a person who lived by faith. Now let's come to three. We need to exercise, I'm sorry, let's come to two. Uh, no, I read two. Three, we need to exercise our spirit of faith in order to walk by faith and not by that which is seen. We do not regard and look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Okay, then four says the Christian life is a life of things unseen. The degradation of the church is the degradation from things from unseen things to seen things. Saints, look at this definition of the Lord's recovery at number five. I love this. The Lord's recovery is to recover his church from things seen to things unseen. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, just need to consider that prayerfully. Now, the next major point says Jesus is the perfecter, the finisher, the completer of our faith. One says, as we look away unto him continually, he will finish and complete the faith that we need for the running of the heavenly race. Saints, don't stop looking away unto Jesus. And I was convicted by this because I, I remember the first time I looked away unto Jesus. And um, I just believed spontaneously. I just began to love the Lord. No effort. But, you know, um, now I've been a, a believer for many years. I've been in the church life for many years. And, uh, you know, um, I miss Brother Lee so much. I miss Brother Andrew Hughes so much. You know, there's just a lot of brothers that um, I really miss who I could go to for fellowship. But, you know, uh, Brother Lee, what do we do now? Well, that question, what do we do, is coming to some of us brothers now. Brother Ed, what do we do? But, you know, there's, there's some, I don't know, you know, it's not organizational, but there there are senior co-workers who, the things that used to go to Brother Lee, Brother Lee was our umbrella, are coming to some of us. Now, we're the umbrella. And so uh, there's whole, there's, there was some holes in my umbrella. And uh, after Brother Lee went to be with the Lord. And so I was convicted. I, I, I realized, my goodness, Ed, you got to keep looking away unto Jesus. Don't, okay, these things are coming to you, but don't look at them. Don't be distracted by them. Yes, you need to confront them. Yes, you need to pray about them. Yes, you need to fellowship with the other brothers about them. But while you're doing that, 
Look away unto Jesus. Saints, have you ever been discouraged by looking away unto Jesus? Absolutely not. Now, if you look away unto Roger, as much as I love Roger, if you look away under Roger Fisk all the time, let's say I got a camera and I followed Roger around everywhere. He wouldn't want me to do that. But let's say I did that. I would eventually go, oh, my goodness, Brother Roger, he needs to, you know, I, I might see some weaknesses there. Same with me. If you look away, I don't want you to look away under me. I'm still in this, I'm still in the tunnel of transformation, just like you are. And so we, all of us, no matter how many years we've been in the church life, from the youngest to the oldest, we need to look away unto Jesus. And he will be the perfecter of our faith. And as faith, he will grow in us. Um, okay, one says, as we look away on him continually, he will finish and complete the faith that we need for the running of the heavenly race. Next point says, we all have the same faith in quality. But the quantity of faith we have depends upon how much we contact the living God so that we may have him increase within us. So Romans 12, 3 is a big verse, saints, because Paul says, I say through the grace of God given to me to everyone who is among you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but you need to think so as to be sober-minded as God has apportioned to each a measure of faith. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Be sober-minded. God has apportioned to each of us a measure of faith. You know, when Billy was sharing on this, I could never forget this. Actually, I edited this portion. I, I believe it's in print. He, he made a point out of this. He said, if you think you have the same measure of faith that the Apostle Paul does, you're crazy. You're crazy. You're not sober-minded. You're crazy because you don't have the same measure of faith that Paul has. Now, brothers, in, in, in the, we had a major turmoil in the late 80s. And I really, you know, I feel bad because I really love these brothers. But they got into a condition where they, they actually thought, look, all we have to do is get the same books Brother Lee has, same Bible dictionaries, same reference books, and we can just we can just do the, do what he does. We can be exactly we can do what he does. Listen, that is crazy. That is crazy. You do not have Brother Lee's portion. Yes, you do have your portion. You do have your portion in the body, but you need to be sober-minded. You have a certain measure in the body. Brother Lee has his measure in the body, and you do not have that kind of measure because the Lord has apportioned him a great measure of faith so that he can carry out the ministry of the age. Um, okay, I'll go on. Um a says, faith in the progressing stage comes through our contacting the triune God. B says, the way to receive such a faith is to contact its source, the Lord, the process and consummated God. Hallelujah. I love this. By calling on him, do you graduate from calling on the name of the Lord? No. If you say, Ed, I've been in the church like so many years, I don't need to call on the Lord like these young people do. Well, if you graduate from calling on the name of the Lord, you have just graduated into a coffin, C-O-F-F-I-N. 
We need to, we all need to call on the name of the Lord, right? All the time. We need to pray, read his word. She says when we contact him, he is overflowing within us, and there is a mutuality of faith among us. We are encouraged through the faith that is in one another. Three says, I love this, our regenerated spirit, our spirit of faith is the victory that overcomes the Satan-organized and usurped world. Now, if you just listen closely to me, we're, we're, we're coming to the end, so I'm not going to take much longer, so just bear with me here. Listen to this. First John 5, 4 says, everything, everything, not everyone, everything that has been begotten of God overcomes the world. Okay, what is that? John 3, 6 says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But First John 5, 4 says, everything that has been begotten of God. What has been begotten of God? Our spirit has been begotten of God. So our spirit overcomes the world. And First John 5, 4 says, says our faith overcomes the world. Well, our spirit is a spirit of faith. You put this all together, our spirit of faith overcomes the world. This is why we need to exercise our spirit of faith and ask the Lord to keep us in our spirit. Now, Vore goes on to say the great irrepressible and unlimited power of faith motivates thousands to suffer for the Lord, risk their lives, and become overcoming sent ones and martyrs for the carrying out of God's eternal economy, which is in faith. Then the next major point says this, according to Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. One says the Lord Jesus knew that through his death he would be glorified in resurrection, and that his divine life would be released to produce many brothers for his expression. For the joy set before him, he despised the shame and volunteered to be delivered to the Satan usurped leaders of the Jews and Gentiles and to be condemned by them unto death. What was the joy set before the Lord? The joy set before the Lord was for him to produce many brothers for his expression. And these many brothers are the many members of the body of Christ. That was the joy uh, set before him. And saints, you know, um, you know, in Matthew 25, you remember when, when uh, in Matthew 25, 23, I'll give you an example. This talks about our investing our talents or the gifts the Lord has given us. If we do that, here's what, here's what, what the master says. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slaves. You are faithful over a few things. I will set you over many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Saints, I, I do pray this frequently, and I hope you would. We need to pray, Lord, I want to hear you say this to me at the judgment seat of Christ. I want to hear you say to me, well done, Brother Ed. Good and faithful slave. Well done, Brother Aaron. Good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. Just a few things. I will set you over many things. Now listen to this. Enter into the joy 
of your master. That joy there is the greatest reward in the millennial kingdom. Now, the next point says, therefore, God highly exalted him to the heavens, seated him at his right hand, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, made him both Lord and Christ, and crowned him with glory and honor. Then uh, three says, oh, hallelujah, it's the final point. Three says this, if we look away unto him as such a wonderful and all-inclusive one, he will minister himself as heaven, life, and strength into us, transfusing and infusing us with all that he is so that we may be able to run the heavenly race and live the heavenly life on earth. In this way, he will carry us through all the lifelong pathway of faith and lead and bring us into glory. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Okay, that's the message, saints. Amen.